right, all right. Welcome to the Cavachips Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavachips Podcast is sponsored in part by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. And by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles, making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up, there's been quite the effort on the part of many organizations and commentators to heighten awareness of the relevance of the maritime domain, the importance of protecting seaborne trade, the dangers of territorial expansion, and of course, about the need for increased investment in the U.S. Navy. But are these messages having any effect? We'll talk with three noted commentators, Brian Clark, Brian McGrath, and Jerry Hendricks, to see if there's any reason to have hope for these efforts. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The U.S. Missile Defense Agency conducted a successful test March 30th with the destroyer Daniel Inouye, which launched two standard SM-6 Dual-2 missiles to detect, track, engage, and intercept a medium-range ballistic missile target in its terminal flight phase. The test, dubbed Flight Test Aegis Weapon System 31 Event 1A, was held on the Pacific Missile Range facility of Kauai, Hawaii. The carrier USS Nimitz and ships of her strike group arrived at Busan, South Korea, March 28th, directly following a port visit by the ships and Marines from the Macon Island Amphibious Ready Group. Both groups of ships are engaged in a series of exercises with Korean and Japanese military forces in the region. The dry cargo ship USNS Matthew Perry underwent a scheduled maintenance period in India during March. The ship was at Larson and Tubro Limited's LNT shipyard in Katapali near Chennai from March 11th to 27th. It's the second time a U.S. Navy ship underwent a maintenance period at the Indian shipyard following the USNS Charles Drew in August 2022. The U.S. Coast Guard on March 30th revealed that the medium endurance cutter Harriet Lane would shift from the Atlantic to the Pacific coast as part of an effort announced earlier this year to boost U.S. Coast Guard presence in the Pacific. Harriet Lane will shift home port from Portsmouth, Virginia to Honolulu, Hawaii sometime this fall, becoming the first Bear Class 270-foot cutter to be based in the Pacific. The class was discovered upon entering service in the mid-1980s to have seakeeping issues in the Pacific's vast swells, and until now, all have been Atlantic cutters. In new ship news, the littoral combat ship Kingsville, LCF-36, was launched March 27th at Austell, USA in Mobile, Alabama, where on March 20th, the Expeditionary Fast Transport Cody, EPF-14, also was launched. The littoral combat ship Santa Barbara, LCS-32, was commissioned April 1st near her namesake city of Santa Barbara at Port Winemi, California. And in Boston, Massachusetts, the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Warren DeAmpert, WPC-1151, was commissioned March 30th. And the Navy announced March 31st the $1.3 billion award to Huntington Ingalls Industries of the Detail Design and Construction Contract for the yet-to-be-named amphibious transport dock ship LPD-32. The ship will become the third Flight 2 variant of the LPD-17 San Antonio class and will be built 
at Ingalls Shipbuilding in Pascagoula, Mississippi, where it is scheduled for delivery in September 2029. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, it is time to move on to this week's discussion portion of the podcast. We're going to do something a little bit different this week. Um, Because of scheduling, we couldn't get all three of our guests together, so we'll break this into two segments. The first segment, we will have Brian Clark, a senior fellow and director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute, and he'll be joined by Brian McGrath, who is the founder and managing director of the Ferry Bridge Group, Um, Both Brian's are retired Navy commanders. They are exceptional Navy thinkers, and we're very lucky to have them. In the second part of the discussion portion, we'll be joined by Dr. Jerry Hendricks, a retired Navy captain, president of the Hendricks and Associates LLC. Um, Jerry also is a dynamic naval thinker. In advance of the Sea, Air, and Space Symposium, we wanted to get all three of these uh, naval thinkers together to talk about naval messaging to look at how the Navy was doing, to look at how the Navalist community was doing, uh, where are things going well, where are their deltas, um, and to really help set the stage and the mindset um, before the thousands of Naval enthusiasts get together in National Harbor, Maryland next week. So without further ado, let's jump into our first segment. Welcome to the podcast, Brian and Brian. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. My pleasure. So as we mentioned in the introduction, we're going to take the next uh, 20 or so minutes as a preview or as a, I guess, foundation for getting our audience ready for what will be the many discussions at Sierra and Space uh, in the upcoming week. Um, But we want to talk about messaging. Um, And over the last couple of weeks, we saw things like our upcoming guest, uh, Jerry Hendricks, put an article out in The Atlantic. Uh, There was a much discussed 60 Minutes piece. Um, We're about a year into the Center for Maritime Strategy that the Navy League kicked off with with the help of uh, one of our guests, uh, uh, with the help of Brian McGrath. Um, You know, our guest, Brian Clark, uh, writes and puts papers out all the time. So I want to ask both of you, how is the Navy doing on messaging and um, how is the broader naval community doing on messaging and, you know, what you use to judge whether they're, you know, trending in the right direction or the wrong direction? Uh, Brian McGrath, I'll start with you if you don't mind. I'm a bad person to ask a question like that too, because I take a maximal view and, and pretty much anything else looks insufficient to me. So. The Navy has to work within a set of rules. Those rules uh, are, I think, constraining and restraining on what is required at this point, which is a much more vocal and strong um, uh, push for uh, addition for sea power. Um, I I think the Navy does a fine job. I think, for instance, you just mentioned the 60 minutes the 60 minutes interview. I don't think anyone gets excited when they say 60 minutes is at the door. That's not a that's not a thing that's going to cause people to say, "Ooh, good." Um, I think the Navy did about as well as they possibly could have in that uh, in that piece the other night. I thought it was very positive. I thought uh, Admiral Paparo was was very strong and direct, and his answers were brief and to the point. Um, I thought uh, CNO got tougher questions. Uh, and and he plays under a much different set of rules than Admiral Paparo does. Um, and so his answers reflected that set of rules. You mentioned the Center for Maritime Strategy. One of one of my hopes 
for that organization was and remains that it does not feel constrained, that it does not have to play by the Marquess of Queensbury rules that jointness and uh, living under an OSD umbrella forces on service chiefs. Um, I think they're off to a pretty good start every now and then they, they, they put something out that I cheer uh, and I'm happy about. But in general, I think they could be a little bit more leaning forward and a little bit stronger helping the Navy with its messaging. Brian Clark, I'll ask you to answer the same question, but maybe also address the broader, I because I agree with what Brian McGrath said about the 60 minutes piece from a Navy standpoint. As a former Navy PAO, I mean, it. I was pretty proud of of uh, you know my, my brothers and sisters that are still in uniform, very proud of those people that participated. I was less proud of the fourth estate, less proud of the questions that 60 Minutes asked. Um, and I felt like there was a broader community voice, a critical voice that was missing. Can you have a Navy that communicates well under the constraints and restraints that they have, but still have a broader community voice that um, points to the deficiencies that maybe exist in the larger sea power discussion? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think... Um, you certainly could have a Navy leadership that is more forthright about the challenges it's under, right? So I think I think you can you can stand up and say, this is the kind of Navy we're trying to build. This is in general how we expect to fight. This is why we're making the choices we are. Um, and then I'm constrained. The Navy is constrained by you know what what's available to us in terms of resources. You know the administration makes certain choices because that they got voted in office, and I work for them. You know you can you can be honest about that kind of thing. I think during sequestration we encountered a similar set of challenges where we had political dynamics that forced the Navy to make certain choices. And even though the administration didn't like the fact that the Navy and other services had to go up and say we're doing this, it's dumb, we don't like doing it, but that's what we have to do in order to meet the fiscal constraints you put us under. Um, I think you can you can do both. I think you'd be very honest about that. I think the CNO has been, uh, I mean, unwilling to do that for a variety of reasons, but I think, I think that's a mistake. I think the Navy could have done a much better job in this budget rollout, for example, of explaining why the choices are there that are there and that they're based on a certain set of assumptions and priorities. For example, we are prioritizing dealing with an invasion of Taiwan or potential invasion of Taiwan. That's the lens through which we viewed the budget. A lot of things you know, fell off the table under the fiscal constraints we're faced with. And I think the 60 Minutes piece did a great job of you know, conveying Admiral Paparo talking about, you know, here's the challenge we got, here's some ways we're thinking about fighting. But back home here in DC, I think you know, CNO could have done a better job of articulating how he's trying to support that uh, and why in certain places he can't necessarily you know do it all um and why he and why he and how they're prioritizing readiness for example i mean i think that's just one example of where the budget i think you know came across with a pretty good set of uh, priorities which has not necessarily always been the case um and why that's why that's important they just didn't do a great job of tying it together with what they're trying to accomplish operationally before I turn it to Chris, I want to ask one, one more. Is there a central theme, a central belief missing from um, the Navy, whether it's Navy leadership, whether it's communities within the Navy? My hypothesis out of the Navy, as I've looked more at the Army and the Air Force, is, is that land power really does drive what the Army says and does. Air power really does drive and um, influence what the Air Force says. Sea power doesn't seem to be as central to what the Navy says and does. 
Um, you tend to have community interests. You tend to have budgetary interests. You tend to have maritime security interests, sort of independent of sea power. Brian McGrath, your thoughts on are we missing that central pillar of sea power as a unifying both message tool, but also strategy tool? And then Brian Clark, your thoughts as well. The bottom line is that sea power broadly understood is in fact wrapped up nicely in the 2023 NDAA Title 10 mission statement of the Navy, the change to the Navy's mission, which raises peacetime security and prosperity to the same level as incident as operations incident to combat at sea which was the entire mission statement previously so there exists in public law now a very articulate instantiation of modern sea power that i would like to see the CNO and the secretary never, ever, ever stop pointing to when they say it's more than just Taiwan. That gives them that gives them the legitimacy. It gives them the uh, the uh, the strategic basis. It gives them everything they need to run a little bit afoul of uh, the administration and say it. It's our job. Our job is bigger than just fighting war. Brian yeah, uh, I, to- I, I totally agree with that. And I think that, you know, getting back to the narrative, I think that was a missed opportunity uh, because you did have this new change in law. It articulates this, you know, entirely different mission, which drives you in a different direction in terms of force structure. And, and clearly the budget was not emphasizing that presence, you know, day-to-day deterrence mission uh, because we made a bunch of choices like amphibious ships and other things that just don't necessarily fit into the the, uh, the Taiwan invasion scenario. So, so that 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 should have been an opening to be able to talk more broadly and maybe be more forthright about choices that were made, and maybe then create a, a discussion on the part of Congress about how they support that. Um, and that, but I think again, getting back to this idea of sea power, um, you know, one of the challenges the Navy has is um, sea power to you know what end? People don't necessarily view the maritime domain as being highly contested, right? They view air power and land power and being in support of wars abroad, right? They're looking at that, you know, supporting U.S. interests abroad. But they don't necessarily see the maritime, the, the American public doesn't see the maritime domain as this highly contested environment where we have to have ships in order to protect our access to the sea. And therefore, I think maybe that's why it's hard to gain traction with that idea of sea power as a organizing principle to grow the Navy. I guess, you know, um, one of my issues here is just, again, lack of opportunities. You just You just touched on it. Um, and Brian, you know, you've been as, as articulate as anyone <clears throat> that I've heard anyway about explaining this budget in the context of Taiwan, that from OSD down, um, the, the, the go, no go on program after program after effort after effort is what does it contribute to the, to the defense or the fight of, uh, about Taiwan? And in that context, at least it makes a little more sense. You can argue about that all you want. You can have opinions about that. Let's discuss but at least there's thought there rather than other people saying, I don't know what they're thinking. Well, this is what they're thinking. Um, but there, there is, there's, a, there's a lack of articulating that. Well, and and we, you know, we, haven't, we haven't had the posture hearings yet uh, where the heads of you know, the, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chief uh, comes out and, and, and uh, testifies to Congress. So we haven't heard what their message is gonna be yet. But in that context, it does make more sense. The other part is, you know, Brian, you're talking about the, the uh, Brian McGrath, you're talking about the, the mission of the Navy. 
is more than just fighting all-out war. But that's not what this defense budget is. So, you know, again, something's not 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 connecting here. Where you know you're talking about that, that was a major issue. You were you were a good proponent of that. I could couldn't possibly agree more. But you know, the the part about this this isn't adding up. You're not being you're not being coherent here. Uh, is 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 just really frustrating. You know, the navy the navy's budget rollout was okay. Could have been better. It could always be better. Um, it is what it is in many ways. The uh, comments made at the McAleese Forum uh, a few days later did not follow strongly in line with that budget and confused more people. So the first week, the week ended, that budget week rollout ended maybe kind of not so good. And then 60 Minutes comes out. 60 Minutes have been doing hatchet jobs on military stories for as long as it's been 60 Minutes. And they don't they don't have a good track record for for being even 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 neutral on the military. Um, given that, and I we, we all know the effort the Navy put into it. I mean, it was it was really it's kind of awesome. Um, the Navy got its message out. Uh, Paparo, Admiral Paparo, Pappy, as he's known, um, said what he says all the time. Really, he just got it out to a much larger audience. Um, everybody got to see the worth of an aircraft carrier a 50-year-old aircraft carrier that's still on the front lines. That's a, that's a vindication of, an, of, of that investment. Now, can the Navy follow up on this is the question. Is there an opportunity now for the Navy to keep some kind of drumbeat going? And again, I go back to things like you know, Admiral Fogo's group at the Navy League. Um, are all these articles having, having an effect? Where do you go from here? Can the Navy even even sell sea power and stop selling, you know, carrier aviation or surface warfare or submarines or something else? Can they come together like the Army and Navy seem to do? Brian McGrath, let's start with you. First of all, I am not a big fan of the argument, not that you're making it, but the argument that some make that the Navy's message has to be this broadly understood national message. Um, it really has to be understood by the right people on Capitol Hill. Um, that's the that's the more effective sort of retail uh, messaging than sort of a wholesale sell your message to America. The Marines do a great job on that whole on that wholesale message. Um, the Navy's is a little bit more esoteric. Let's face it, sea power it requires you to think a little bit more about how it is applied when people aren't shooting at each other. Um, so I think we can do a better job with that. I think uh, one of the problems with the NDAA mission change is that it came 80% of the way through the budget cycle. So uh, whatever whatever do-overs happened between Christmas and the release of this budget were probably far more associated with passbacks from OMB at the White House than any good, good faith attempt to meet the law, right? Um, the fiscal year 24 budget, or excuse me, the fiscal year 25 budget, there's no excuse. There is no excuse. And I think every single OSD and Navy official who goes up to testify in the budget should be asked what kinds of changes can we anticipate in the next budget submission based on the mission statement, this, the mission uh, changing uh, in the 20, 2023 uh, NDAA. Um, again, I think it's a tight, it's a tight focused message on the right 
the right people that will help get it done. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it has to be uh, focused on the right audiences, you know, the people that, that matter, that make the choices that really impact the Navy. Um, I also think, you know, it needs to be focused on, you know, sea power to what end? You know, I mean, sea power just for sea power's sake, I don't think is a very uh, compelling message. And that's been sort of the problem that we've had in the community is we assert that sea power is important. You know, we draw back on previous historical examples of when it's been important and it just doesn't resonate because people just don't see our maritime lines of communication being under threat. Um, and I think uh, we could you know, do a better job of conveying, you know, where does this peacetime mission actually play out? I think Brent Sadler has done some good work on naval diplomacy and how you know, having a Navy that's out there uh, interacting with our allies is important or partners and how uh, in a lot of ways, you know, Admiral Paparo talked a little bit about this in 60 minutes, but, you know, target audience for a lot of our efforts out there is Southeast Asia and all these, the players on the sidelines, you know, so do we get those countries on, on our side or more predominantly on our side? How do you use the Navy to support doing that? Um, how do we use the, the Navy to you know, work with our other maritime capabilities like the shipping companies to make sure that we've got supply chain resiliency? You know, there's, there's concerns about China using supply chain warfare because it's got such a big share of the shipping industry. So there's, there's a lot of ways to convey that. I think it, and I think you know, discussions like you know, just throwing sea power around as if it, people know what that means. And also this idea like Jerry brings up in his article of uh, naval dominance. Again, I think that's just sort of a, it's a such a broad and kind of vague idea, and people don't necessarily see it as, as necessarily as necessary, right? Dominant. Why is dominance necessary? What is it that we're actually trying to accomplish? I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to go to uh, Jerry Hendricks um, to uh, you know provide his his input. But for for each of you, and you've kind of mentioned this in our discussion, but what would you say for you personally? How, how are you? Your metric, you know, is it whether the, it's hill feedback, whether it's the budget, whatever? What two or three things do you judge the effectiveness on the Navy's messaging or the Navy story? How, how do you you know kind of wrap this discussion up? What what are you measuring if you do have something tangible that you can offer? For, to the broader audience? I, I look at the budget submission. It's the, it's the most obvious, it is the most obvious uh, sign of the degree to which the Navy's story is being, uh, is being told and internalized. When I look at the Navy's budget submission and the shipbuilding budget, FY24 to FY28, and the shipbuilding budget at the end of that cycle in FY28, is 100 million constant year dollars less than it is in 24, the story is not being told right, or it isn't being internalized. We're, we are spending less money in 2028 on building ships than we are in 24. And that, that just makes no sense to me. That's the most, that's the easiest metric to check. Brian Clark, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the budget, I think, is the, the best indication of sort of what's the Navy, Navy's message. And I think there's a big misalignment between that and what we've heard from Navy leaders. Um, and I think, you know, uh, Brian brings up a great point about how the shipbuilding account goes down over time. Uh, and then even though, and it's gone up dramatically in the last what, five years. Uh, at the same time, though, we really haven't bought that many more ships and we're retiring more than we're, we're, we're uh, buying. And so the message that I'm getting from all that is, and, and coupled with the readiness investments is, we're really focused on the today. You know, we're trying to keep the fleet ready today. We're doing the bare minimum in order to recapitalize it for tomorrow. And the, the choices that we're making are not really contributing to a fleet that's going to fight differently down the road. So I don't see much in the way of innovation. So my, the message I'm getting from the Navy is we're focused on how do we deal with the problems today? 
how do we do the bare minimum to prepare for tomorrow? And we're not going to necessarily be very innovative about how we do it. Um, and if I'm China, I'm going to look at that and say, well, okay, this is a Navy in stasis. I've got the ability to maybe wait them out um, because I kind of know what they're going to do. And I can, I can predict that into the future. Brian McGrath, Brian Clark, thank you very much for joining us. Look forward to seeing you uh, at Sea, Air, and Space uh, in, in the next couple of days. Uh, and uh, look forward to having you back on the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Switching to the second segment of the discussion portion of the podcast, we are pleased to be joined by return guest, Dr. Jerry Hendricks. Uh, Dr. Hendricks is a retired Navy captain um, and a prolific writer and commentator on naval strategy, on sea power, um, and on the significance of the history of the United States Navy. Jerry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be with you guys again. So we talked in the segment, and I'm sure most of the audience um, has seen or heard about, but um, you have a new article out um, that uh, appeared in The Atlantic um, entitled The Age of American Naval Dominance is Over. I want to get your sense as to why you decided to write that piece. And specifically, um, when I saw that you posted it, I was struck by the fact that it appeared in The Atlantic, not traditionally a place where these types of discussions are held. So uh, can you give just a very short recap of your argument? And then let's talk about, um, you know, why the Atlantic and maybe some of the feedback that you've received um, from, you know, maybe non-traditional readers of this type of uh, article. Well, Chris, thanks for that question. First of all, I'd say that inside the printed page of the Atlantic, the April issue of the Atlantic, the actual title in, in the printed version is America's Future Lies at Sea. And then what's interesting is when they electronically bring it over to, you know, the Twitterverse, the electronic universe, they use the age of American naval dominance is over. So, you know, one is a clickbait, uh, you know, title, obviously much more provocative, but the title actually within the printed page is this idea that, hey, our future belongs at sea. And I'm making an advocacy uh, essay about why that matters. In fact, Jerry, why- Jerry, Jerry did, did you do that or did they do that? Is that just how it came out when you saw it? Yeah, that's actually how it came out. So, you know, you know, as writers, you know, we write the words, but someone else chooses the title. And I, I don't really have a problem with either of the titles, but I just found it interesting from a marketing standpoint that when you're in an internet environment, you want a much more provocative, aggressive uh, title. And then in the print page where we're rather staid, conservative and dignified that we would use, you know, essentially this title talking about an advocacy for uh, a strategy of the future. And, and the essay is, is literally sort of um, my argument that we need a maritime-focused national security strategy. That in fact, our history, our geography, our strategic requirements today require us to kind of make a decision between being a continental power or a sea power, that we really don't have enough resources to continue to be all things to all peoples. And I make the argument from history, as well as against uh, our geography and our resources, that I think we need to focus on a, a maritime national security strategy. And when I say that, I'm making a very distinct statement, not naval, but maritime. We need to have a lot more investment in commercial shipbuilding, in the merchant marine, and that those investments will in fact make our Navy cheaper and perhaps even easier and better to build. So that's, uh, that's the, the, the short preface of the essay. Jerry, I think, you know, what, you know the, the argument that you make here in your in your in this new article is one that i mean your theme is, is something we talk about all the time an awful lot of folks we know talk about it all the time 
why is this necessary? How come, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't ever seem to really hit home anywhere. It's well, nothing new. We haven't been doing this. This isn't new that we've been doing this, but you know, we have, we have, we certainly, we have colleagues who are constantly writing articles, getting, trying to get in mainstream articles. Atlantic is a great platform to get this out. The Navy just hit a, you know, a real wet kiss from your aunt from 60 minutes of all places, of all places. You know, you're not going to get much bigger of a platform than that. But the resonance never seems to hit home anywhere. People just don't. I mean, what you know, most popular movie recently is the Top Gun Maverick. You know, the it's it's like it's there, but it never lands. It's flying around. Why do well, you think that is? Well, I, I, I cover this explicitly in the essay, which is that the ocean is assumed that everyone for the last 70 years has lived in a world where, you know, the free sea and free trade and free movement uh, on the world's oceans uh, is just a natural, it's a given in our daily life. So much so like, you know, like the air we breathe or gravity, you know, it's just there and we assume it. No one, almost no one today uh, was alive at a time when the ocean was contested, when great powers vied to control large swaths of the ocean or the idea that piracy was big. So everyone just has grown up in a world where, hey, the seas are there and they're free. And so everyone just ignores the challenges that are going on at sea. Uh, and, and yet we're beginning to see that dynamic change. So we are moving towards a world where the oceans are becoming more contested, that great powers like China and Russia are starting to lay territorial claims over greater swaths of the ocean. And even things like piracy are beginning to be on the uptick, largely because, and this is part of my argument, is that uh, powers like us in Great Britain have pulled back the size of our navies. We're no longer out there to police them. And so one of the things we have to do is make a broader argument as to why the oceans still matter and why they cannot be assumed. And that, quite frankly, is one of the reasons why I targeted going after a platform like the Atlantic. Uh, oddly enough, the Atlantic is a traditional place where navalist ideas were expressed. I talk about in the essay that this is where Alfred Thayer Mahan first broached some of his ideas in a December 1890 essay that Theodore Roosevelt wrote, that Henry Cabot Lodge wrote, and that a number of theorists wrote up until World War II, when after that victory, the ocean became assumed. So, you know, I just kind of uh, put it, you know, out there that uh, the Atlantic, obvious, obviously it's called the Atlantic. Um, you know, uh, you know, obviously is a place where I think we ought to have this conversation. What's your feedback been like from uh, the Navy um, or people close to the Navy? Um, do you think that they understand um, the nuance in the argument that, that you're making? I mean, I certainly as a as a Navy spokesperson was sometimes guilty of maybe burying the larger lead that you write about in the Atlantic by wanting to jump to the stuff and talk, you know, make more of a naval argument instead of a sea power or a maritime argument. Um, are you getting positive feedback from folks that maybe see the difference in what you're arguing for? Yes. Uh, so I've been actually really pleased, uh, both from the, like, the readership of the Atlantic. I've gotten a lot of feedback via back channels from people who are, are subscribers and readers who wanted to reach out to me. Uh, industry has reached out to me, uh, both the commercial side as well as the naval shipbuilding side, uh, to talk about uh, you know, sort of the coherence of the argument. They're pleased with that. Uh, I've heard from people you know, uh, who want to write op-eds, uh, revising and extending some of the arguments, and I've uh, encouraged them to do that in sort of heartland newspapers like the Chicago Tribune or the Indianapolis Star, someplace like that where we can amplify this argument and get it out there to a broader audience. 
Uh, but also I've heard from the traditional navalists like ourselves, you know, one of the questions is, you know, congratulations on getting into the Atlantic. Second question is, is how can I get something in the Atlantic? Uh, which I, I'm heartily encouraged that perhaps that they take something and bring it forward to the editorial staff, because we need to have more of these types of arguments. And we need to take them to places like the New Yorker, uh, where non-standard, non, you know, sort of, uh, you know, not our community, not the navalist community are writing. Uh, I love proceedings. I've written there in the past. Uh, you know, I've written for National Review for years. But in many cases, that's kind of preaching to the choir. So we need to find a place to get to readers who aren't familiar with the issues that we talk about day in, day out. I will tell you, as a writer, one of the things that was interesting in working with the editorial staff of The Atlantic was I would write a word or a phrase like naval presence, and they like, well, what do you mean by this? And then I would write them a paragraph about what naval presence is, and then they would put it in. This essay grew from like 3,800 words to 5,000 words in breaking down what for you and I is sort of a code word speak that, uh, but, but they don't get. What was the word count for the final article? It came up just shy of 5,000 words. They actually so, printed a 5,000. I mean, you know, one of the problems with this is uh, having been an editor and a writer for many years, um, you know, people are busy. And yeah. it's really, you know, one of, the, one, one of the great problems in military writing, one of the huge problems is too many people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to really go out here and annoy some folks, uh, know how to write um, academic papers. And academic papers are something that's required to demonstrate a mastery of a topic. And you start with a whole, you know, preamble and history and all this stuff. The, but these people will write 5,000 words and they don't get to the point until the last 300. Yes. You know, it's like, okay, I'm, you know, you can really throw, I mean, it really is a kind of a rule of thumb. You would get these huge articles and it's like, what are you talking about? You know, that in writing, you got to tell me really quick, what are you talking about? Why are you talking about it? Why should I care? And why should I spend the next five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever reading your article? And you better tell me fast. I'm not going to keep reading and reading and reading and reading and be impressed with how much you know. What's your point? And they, you know, there's a lot of 5,000. I'm not talking about your article, but as an editor, there's a lot of 5,000 word articles that are honest to God, 500, 700 word articles. Get to your point. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, one of the issues here is that how do you get, you know, people just don't have time to read a lot of magazine articles. I get too many magazines. I love my magazines. I hardly ever get time to read them. Um, you know, you have to get, there are other platforms that are out there. I mean, some of it is social media, some of it is videos, some of it's podcasts, um, some of it's Twitter, um, you know, Instagram, this sort of thing. I mean, looking at the whole panoply of, uh, you know, media that's available, what are we missing here? Is there, is there something else that, that, that people should be doing, could be doing? What do you think when, when, you, when you look at this across the board? This, this, I mean, we believe in this messaging. We believe that maritime power is really important. We believe that this country should be focused on the importance of maritime power and sea power and trying to guarantee it with, a, frankly, a much higher investment than what we're doing today. Well, but it I never see, it seems to really hit home. I, I think we live in a challenge right now, Chris and Chris, in that, and, and I don't want to I, I diminish this. I'm going to use the phrase. We live in a, in a attention deficit disorder society where Twitter of 240 characters uh, becomes the way that we communicate with each other, which is essentially bumper sticker. 
uh, type approaches to things. We don't have time to really fully express and fully unpack ideas, which is one of the reasons you know, that I like uh, writing essays more than I like writing news stories. I'm, I'm, I'm not really good at sort of the shock jock hit and run radio interview. I wanna have time to unpack these issues uh, and in places where we can fully explore them. So the Atlantic is one of those places, you know, they've got 800,000 subscribers who will read 5,000 word essays. Those are people that I want to reach to. Um, you, know, uh, you know, occasionally I get three to uh, 4,000 words in National Review that gives me a chance to kind of explore some of these nuanced things. You know, the problem is, is we're, we, we need to get this broader, uh, uh, you know, decision makers to sit down and really fully consider. And I really think that the Navy's leaders, civilian and uh, uniform, have a difficulty in that they live in sort of a short Twitter world, but the problems that they're describing are long form essay problems. And so to be able to get into an interaction, just watch a you know, testimony with the defense leaders up with the Congress, you know, hey, five minutes, I'm gonna ask you three questions. I want you to answer them all in five minutes. Well, that's not the way the world operates. And you know, we need to have more time to think about this, digest them and fully explain them. And, and that's one of the reasons why I sort of looked at the Atlantic as a place that I wanted to go and write to have the room to fully explore why it is that the United States future should belong at sea. Uh, that's a big idea that I believe in. And that was a place I had the space to explore it. I've long thought and argued that um, that conversation that you just referenced, I mean, we're, we're too focused on the battle of the budget versus, you know, the battle of the South China Sea or the battle of the fill in the blank battle at sea. And, and that's what I really enjoyed about the article was you spent a significant amount of time laying out the problem, the challenge, and in a way that I think most people outside of navalist circles can understand or, you know, re relate to. I mean, you talk about driving past a Walmart, a BJ's Wholesale Club, a Lowe's, a Home Depot. I mean, th this is where people are going to feel our lack of maritime security first, right? I mean, you know, there's always that lesson about the longshoreman strike in LA and what that did to people in the in the heartland. And you, you know, you did a good job of 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 kind of you know extrapolating out and talking about what a loss of that maritime security would be. Um, as we go into next week's um sea air and space or you go to other conferences, are you hopeful that you can start to get Navalists to stop arguing about maybe the two to five percent that we don't agree on and talking more about the you know 95 percent that we do because that's what I walked away reading this article saying is like hey that's the 95 percent of what all navalists agree on and you didn't talk about carriers or JSF or you, you know uh frigates versus LCS I mean you got to the heart of the problem uh so yes uh you know I'm, I'm hoping people can kind of get beyond arguing amongst ourselves the, the concept of preaching to the choir, as it were, and arguing over subtle differences in the way that we approach navalism, to understand that really the challenge today is to bring uh, the navalist arguments to the much broader national audience. Uh, so, you know, stop turning, you know, inward to have discussion amongst ourselves, turn outward, find venues in order to get to the American people. Uh, to make them more aware of the world that they live in, to understand that we are a continent between two vast oceans separated from the great world island of Eurasia. 
and that everything that we have comes to us by sea and everything that we make and we want to send has to go by sea. You know, reconnect with the ocean, understand that we are a sea power uh, and always have been and stop making the assumption that it has been and always will be there. Understand that those things are being contested. So uh, yes, again, stop arguing amongst ourselves, start advocating to people who don't understand what it is that we're talking, that if you say naval presence to them and go, what do you mean by that? You know, find that person and actually sit down and talk to them because uh, that's who we have to get to. All right. Amen. Well, Jerry, really, thanks for coming on. Once again, we've been talking to Dr. Jerry Hendricks. Uh, he's, he's a longtime navalist, a naval officer, uh, at one point, the director of naval history. And uh, and he and he just had a great article in the Atlantic Monthly. Is it still the it's still the Atlantic Monthly, right? No, it's the Atlantic. Now the Atlantic, because, okay. Because they I don't actually myself. put it out monthly. Uh, yeah, so, you're right. Yeah, I'm yeah. dating myself, which is not hard at all. So anyway, <laughs> Jerry, really, thanks for thanks for being on, and and well done. My pleasure. Thank, thank you so much, Chris and Chris. Now hear this. Now hear this. And now, Mr. Cervello, with some words of appreciation. Thanks, Chris. I often use this time in the show to complain or poke at Navy leadership for things they could do better. This week, I thought I'd take a different tack. I want to thank and congratulate the CNO and his wife, Linda, for the effort they have personally invested on the Women in the Navy or WIN initiative, the ongoing project to thoughtfully recognize and tell the story of female shipmates. This week, CNO and Mrs. Gilday released an updated Women in the Navy, or WIN book, as it's called, and website to coincide with the conclusion of Women's History Month. The project has two listed objectives, to collectively honor Navy trailblazing women and to inspire not only women, but men alike. The new stories in this edition highlight Lieutenant Commander Amber Cowan, who joined the Navy in 2012 and became the first woman to serve as the executive officer of a submarine, USS Kentucky, SSBN 737. Lieutenant Amanda Lee, the first woman to serve as an FA-18EF pilot as part of the Blue Angels demonstration team. Lieutenant J.G. Regine Tugad Watson, a 2020 Naval Academy graduate and two-time Olympian, as well as the Guamanian flag bearer at the 2020 Olympic Games. And those three names are just a few of the updates that were made in this latest edition. Lots of people tend to roll their eyes when leaders deliver diversity and inclusion messaging. And that's mostly because it's often done badly or in a cringeworthy and ham-fisted fashion. That goes for both government and civilian organizations alike. I have many memories of well-intentioned heritage lunchtime buffets or poorly executed all-hands calls simply to check the block for that month's affinity group celebration. Where WIN succeeds is in its well-constructed and thoughtfully shared stories of Navy sailors doing their part as both trailblazers and shipmates. You can never go wrong by talking about our sailors, regardless of gender, race, or age. Their stories of personal achievements, adversity overcome, and reasons for service are eye-watering and deserve to be shared. I hope WIN becomes the model for highlighting the contributions of the many groups in our Navy that deserve to be celebrated and recognized. Stories that capture milestones while conveying what unites an organization go a long way to making these campaigns successful and value-added. 
If you haven't seen the latest version of the win book, go to www.navy.mil backslash win and check it out. It is well worth your time. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure and tune in all through this week as we air daily special podcasts from the U.S. Navy League Sea Air Space Exposition in National Harbor, Maryland. The Cavishes podcast is sponsored in part by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. And by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. Hey.